a client of mine said, you have an ability to balance the masculine and the feminine together. And it's so easy to write about the business masculine technical impact stuff, finance and driving results and stuff like that. And then there is a genre of people who do what I do who write about the softer stuff, but there's really not a lot of connection. And I, it's something I started doing more in 2020. I want to do more of going forward. How do we measure health in our society? It's measured by GDP. Health is gross domestic product. That's the wellness of our society is based on how much shit can you make? Can you produce? And at some level you go, well, that's got to stop. That can't go on forever. You can't just keep producing stuff. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Connection. I am super excited to share this next guest with you, not only because he's very intelligent and insightful, but also because he's one of my very best friends since the fourth grade. I always learn something from my conversations with Doug Sunheim, and we always laugh a lot. I wanted to be able to share some of that with you. Doug is an executive advisor, consultant, and coach with over 20 years experience of growing businesses and helping others do the same. He works with leaders and teams of Fortune 500 companies to help them maximize their effectiveness. He's delivered talks at Columbia University, NYU, and the Society for Human Resources, just to name a few. Doug is author of the 25 Best Time Management Tools and Techniques and the book Taking Smart Risks. He continues to write for Forbes and the Harvard Business Review. Doug and I talk about what it means to lead with love. We bridge the gap or try to anyways, between the spiritual and philosophical worlds and the very material world of business. I think everyone will benefit from this conversation with Doug Sunheim. Enjoy. I, I wanted this to be like our phone conversations. I mean, how many times have I said, I wish, this, I wish we recorded this because we're just both so brilliant and, uh, <laughs> and forward thinking. And humble. And humble, clearly. <laughs> Being from, Scranton, being from Scranton, Pennsylvania, <laughs> our humble roots. Uh, well, oh. first and most importantly, let's talk about how you got the nickname Gooder. <laughs> I haven't thought about that. Um, I don't know how it started. Was my was it a baseball game? I remember John Bernetti, who is the giver of most uh, nicknames from our crowd of people. Uh, Hooch was from John Bernetti. It was, we were in a baseball game and it was, they were just saying good eye to the batter. Good eye, good eye. And then someone said, hey, that's your name backwards. G-U-O-D. And then that's, I think how it started, yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause it was like, yeah, it's your name G but it's spelled G, yeah. With a U instead of two. Oh, yeah, with a U instead of two O's. Which is I think where the long O, not good, but good came from. Good, got it. Phon phonetically correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm so excited because this is kind of, it might seem off topic with a lot of the other guests I have, which are spirituality, health, nutrition. But every time we talk, I feel like we bring some of that in there, right? We talk about the masculine and feminine and business and, you know, you write for Harvard Business Review and Forbes. You're like, well, what the hell does that have to do with any of this? But to me, I always feel our conversations are very connected, which is, which is why you're here. 
So one of the things I noticed with all of the uh, articles that you sent me that you've written in the past, what, five, seven years, is that there was a tonal shift like in 2020, in 2020, yeah. 2020, um, you know, the titles were, uh, we need leaders who have courage to love and, and at your best, you choose love. And the, the word love enters into the picture much more. And like, I noticed the articles maybe just four or five years ago were very much about, um, you know, methodologies, practicalities, how to be a better leader. And then the conversation kind of shifted to this philosophical, um, yeah. almost emotional sense of leadership. So I was curious about what it was something in your personal life or it was just the events of 2020 that happened that made you shift focus or somehow you evolved as a coach? No, I think I've always been spiritual, philosophically, kind of emotionally inclined. And I think it's more, you know, confidence and just being able to come out and share that more. Um, I had a conversation in January, 2020 with a, so I interview my past clients and I asked them, what, what did you find valuable in our relationship? What was unique? What was different? And what are some things maybe that I could improve? And um, a client of mine said, you have an ability to balance the masculine and the feminine together. And I was like, well, let's talk about that. What do you mean? There's a lot of people who do what you do who are totally kind of on the feminine energy side. You know, they're kind of very, um, uh, you know, feeling based and, you know, it's not, not to stereotype masculine and feminine, but kind of a classic distinction, right? Very feeling based, um, uh, emotion based. And then there's people that are very much on the male side, kind of very action based and drive results. And there's not a lot of people who can live at the, at, the, at the nexus of those two. And I think that that's where your value add is. And I had never had anyone kind of say it to me that clearly before. So I, you know, I think that was early 2020. And I just got to thinking, you know, that's probably my value add. And it's so easy to write about the business, masculine, technical impact stuff, finance and driving results and stuff like that. And then there is a genre of people who do what I do who write about the softer stuff, but there's really not a lot of connection. And I, it's something I started doing more in 2020. I want to do more of going forward because I, mean, I look, we're in a place in our society where there's a lot of things that are fucked up, right? I mean, the environment, social equity, racial equity, you know, these are decisions that were made by a way of transactionally thinking about just driving economies right. and creating a very transactional world. And that's gotten us here. That's gotten us to where we are right now. And, you know, how do we measure health in our society? It's measured by GDP. Health is gross domestic product. That's the wellness of our society is based on how much shit can you make? Yeah. Can you produce? And at some level you go, well, that's gotta stop. That can't go on forever. You can't just keep producing stuff. Um, you know, people started writing about this in the early seventies. There's this group called the club of Rome and they wrote about, um, limits to growth in the early 1970s. Like we're gonna run out of time. We're gonna run out of resources, we're all this stuff. So I think that thinking in that more emotional feeling, social, interpersonal way is the reason why we've allowed ourselves or not thinking in that way is the reason why we've allowed ourselves to 
get into the mess we're in right now. So it's, it's really important for more than like, you know, oh, it's rainbows and unicorns and hey, everyone feels good. Isn't that nice? It's like, no, that's the survival of our species depends on this balanced way of thinking. So that's really, so that's why I'm trying to bring it in more experiment, you know, thinking even like trying to write like poetry about business. That's that last one of Forbes when I wrote about um, who are you at your best was like kind of almost experimenting with poetry. I mean, yeah. kind of weird for Forbes, but you know. But they printed it. I mean, that, yeah. it's, it's published. So right. I mean, you hit on a key word, which is balance, right? We seem in the society to have these great big swings, right? Either you're this kind of emotional, messy, can't get your shit together kind of energy, or it's like very driven. And, and I know in my own practice and in my own life, it was learning that balance. Okay, when do I need a little more of the masculine? When am I sitting a little bit too much in the swamp of my emotions, right? This feeling, I, I'm so, I've been so feeling like it ruled my life. I had to bring a little of the discipline and, and that kind of things to get things done and to pull myself up like that good old, like, okay, put your big curl pants on and let's do some shit. And then I tend to, I can get, you know, I can tend to go too masculine, very like, like you said, um, results driven, oriented, like do go. And my worth is based only on my performance and my, and, and what I can earn in an income. And it's that balance in that, in that nuance, right. And finding personally where we need to be. And, and as a society, I think that's what we're going through. Like this just turmoil of trying to find like, you know, the middle path of, yes, we need roads, we need money, but a good life isn't only measured by those things. Like I don't have a huge house and I'm wildly happy where I live. I see the trees. I like I'm in nature, you know, I think it depends on what brings people joy and what we're realizing is it's not just things, right. It's not consumerism, but that's pumped out to us all the time. Yeah. Well, here's the screwed up thing about that. Our, our world, the way it's currently constructed is addicted to, and I don't mean addicted to like, hey, I really want my thing. It's like the whole system breaks down if people stop consuming. And that's something we really have to like deal with, right? Because first thing after, I remember after 9-11, first thing President Bush said was go out and buy stuff. Because everyone's afraid, you know, because as soon as the consumption stops, the, the wheels stop everywhere. We've built a, we have built a machine dependent on consumption. Yeah. And so how we pull back from that you know, I, I don't really know, but I think what we're really clear on is it can't keep going in this way forever, you know? Well, I had the thought is of, um, I think I invited you to this app called Clubhouse, right? And I've been on it a couple of times. It's these breakout rooms. So it's, like, it's almost like TED Talks with multiple people. And I get on and every time I get on, I'm just like, oh my God, more noise. So it's not just consumption of things that I'm seeing. It's like consumption of constantly being fed ideas like from the out it's just a consumption like people have lost their inner world and lost the connection like we you brought up the word connection before and I, I constantly bring it up but we we've lost this connection to the inside of us really what makes us happy like and and being able to um I don't want to say control but like 
we have the power to dictate how we feel, what's important to us, as opposed to rely on constantly other people telling us, like, this is how I made a million dollars, and this is how you get to be an influencer, and this is how you do it this way, and this is how you act, and this is how all these breakout rooms of, like, experts. I'm like, ah, shut up. I can't listen. Like, it's just so much overload of consumption of information, consumption of news, consumption of, you know, popularity and reality shows. It's like, we just need to turn it off for a while. Yeah. And there's a lot of forces that don't want you to turn and can't. They just, their whole business struggles if you turn it off. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a really, uh, it's a challenging catch 22 we've gotten ourselves into as a society. Because I think, I think you're, you're right. If you, if you think about what brings happiness, you know, it's close connection to family and friends and people that you love and spending time. And I mean, we, we know it's not rocket science, what brings happiness, but we've been sold a vision of happiness starting in the marketing and advertising ages in the thirties and forties and fifties, when it really ramped up, that is really doing a disservice to all of us. Cause now we've got multiple generations that were brought up in mm. this idea of happiness is consumption and an easier life. That's happiness. And to some degree there's validity to it because if I had no tools and no technology and all I had to do was go hunt my own food and you know, like there's no time for experiencing other things. So right. there's this, there's a degree of freedom that we right. get from this technology, but then it's gone way past that into an addiction to a whole bunch of stuff we don't need that separates us. You know, I watched this fascinating documentary about a, a about a, uh, two weeks ago done 10 years ago it's called being in the world and it was existential philosophers talking about the experience of being based on existential philosopher martin heidegger's work and one of the guys was making this point that just that technology is great right up into a point it makes our lives easier but then once we get addicted to it it separates us from life we can't experience life because all we're doing is experiencing those things that we're consuming so i think it's a I don't, there's no easy way out of this. We have to just kind of talk about it together, right? As, as, as a species and yeah, explore. Um, true. And for me, it's, it's, I'm very, I'm trying to be very careful about the message I give because I know it can seem harsh, but it's like, it has to start with the self. Like it's almost impossible to say to Jeff Bezos, stop doing this. Right. He's not going to stop. Right. Clearly. It's up to us to cultivate the willpower, the strength, the connection to, for me, everything, and I keep saying this, it's kind of like a, a record, but it does come down to a connection to some source bigger than you. Because when you're connected to that, you're not trying to fill these voids with cars and, and things like you have enough, like you said, to give you the freedom to do what you want to do. Like, I would love a little bit more to have the freedom to just go take a vacation when I want or you know, for certain things, whatever that is, but I don't need those things. I don't, my happiness doesn't depend upon having those things. I still have a very happy life, but that's something I had to cultivate. And I had to like, you know, I hate to use the word work, but like work on for many years to find that internal source. 
Yeah. And we're, I feel like we're so reliant upon external sources. And, and once you have a taste of that, like self-empowerment that I don't rely on Jeff Bezos for my happiness. I don't rely on the president to, to wake up and feel good today. Right. That his policy, I mean, I, I understand policy has a very direct impact on some people's lives. Um, but ultimately I do believe the power resides within. And then when you have that, it is easier to connect with people um, because you're not relying on other people. Right. For your source of inspiration, joy, peace, comfort. Um, and it's not to say you live in a cave, you just take that and then you go out in the world and then you're available and open to people for those real human connections. I right. think that's, you know. No, I, I, I think it's true. And I think it is work. It's a lot of, it's hard work. It's like really, because at the core of happiness is, is, is a degree of letting go and a degree yes. of acceptance. Yes. And a degree of groundlessness, right? I mean, that's the ultimate paradox of happiness, which is you're paradoxically most happy when you can finally be okay with things being kind of groundless and things being not settled. And, you know, it's, it's the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. I mean, that's what they are, right? It's like the realizing that life's not ideal. Suffering comes from wanting life to be ideal, right? We be, you know, once we become okay with suffering, we can actually find happiness. And then the fourth noble truth is you walk this path in order to be happy. And, but that, that letting go and that groundlessness mm -hmm. is so scary because the word says it all, it's groundless. And we are trained from when we're, you know, young, we want ground under our feet. So I think it takes years of spiritual work, no matter what spiritual world you're in, whether it's meditation or this or that. I think all anyone's ever doing in spiritual work comes down to one thing. It's sitting with groundlessness and slowly year after year after year, being okay with it and realizing, gosh, if I don't get okay with this, it never goes away. Right. The outside world will never give you what you want. I mean, that's the thing. Right. Like, you can't rely it's always going to change. There's always going to be unrest and trying to make this sort of utopia for everyone to feel okay is I think a fruitless effort. Sure. We can improve right about how we treat yeah. each other, but forcing people into that will never work. It almost, I find makes them more resentful. Like it, it always has to be from the individual up. We can provide an environment that gives people an opportunity. That's what I feel like. We need to provide an environment, right? Enough stability for people, because if you don't know when you're getting your next meal, if you don't have a home, if you, you know, you can't get education, you don't have a stable enough environment, a secure enough environment to then do what you were talking about, that inner work, right? Because you're just constantly, I, I, I constantly bring, I, I always bring in this conversation I had with my father at one point. Um, you know, we grew up in Scranton. He, my grandfather was a coal miner. And I asked him once, like, well, didn't this ever come up or these emotional things or any, you know, any kind of psychology things in my family? And he's like, oh my God, my dad was just trying to keep us alive. He was just trying to keep food on the table. Right. And when you're so preoccupied, hierarchy of needs, right? What is that? 
it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If, if you, do, if you yeah. can't satisfy the physiological needs. Right. It's going to be hard to deal with the mental worlds, the su more subtle worlds, right? So yeah, that was his day to day, like just trying to stay alive. And we've moved, I think what we're seeing is an evolution of society. A lot of us are, enough of us right now are more stable than we've ever been. Um, I feel like the environment is ripe to do this work and evolve to the next level, what you're talking about, which is like leading with more love, right? Like we can do this now. We have enough GDP. We have enough stability. We have enough nice things in the world to enjoy. So let's not get caught up in those. Let's use those as a tool to do some of the freaking work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what the numbers are, but we clearly have enough if it were distributed for everyone, right? That's not right. equal distri distribution. That's not what we're talking about here. But, you know, the challenge is that the sound bites around socialism come up. It's very hard to, um, it's very hard to create. See, I think, I think one of the challenges is so much of what has pulled us out of the brutal ways of living from a couple hundred years ago or you know, several hundred years ago to the current day was our current thinking around capitalistic economics. And mm -hmm. you're free to do what you want. And with that freedom, you can build your own thing. And then that, you know, quote unquote, creates, although this has been simplified, the invisible hand of economics, which is what Adam Smith said, which essentially says, if you're free to do what you want and you're free to do what you want, and there's gonna be no one uh, encumbering you to and holding you back, eventually it all works out because um, you, you're the master of your own fate, right? And that type of thinking is what's created hunger and innovation and all these things that we, that we know. It's like, well, if I can get whatever I want just by me working, then I'm gonna work hard and then you're gonna work hard. And you know, we build ourselves up and it's what you know, people like to call the free market. That's the free market. However, you know, the free market, I think this is kind of a separate topic, isn't, isn't, it's not really a free market. There's all sorts of players in the market that get power and you know, screw up the free market. The state has to intervene on different things. But the, but the long and the short of it is that brutal competitiveness in many ways has gotten us to where we are today and it's good. And it simultaneously creates a certain brutality in our current environment, right? We can't get away from it. So I, I always think in the form of tensions, you know, that whether it's masculine, feminine, or it's competitive or collaboration, or it's as a leader, because I work in the leader world, facilitative versus directive. You know, I think everyone gets into trouble when they start to live at one end of each one of those polarities, right? Yeah. The middle way. We're back to the, we're back to the middle way, which, you know, goes back, you know, 5,000 years or whatever it was to the Buddha, um, the middle way, which is, you know, the classic, um, you know, Buddhist way of thinking about stuff. And I kind of think it's the whole secret of life, right? Not too tight, not too loose. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, interesting. So recently I've noticed that, um, now I'm Jewish, so maybe it's just because I'm Jewish, but you know, cracking jokes. If I get too serious about stuff or I'm in a bad mood, I stop and in the moment, see if I can just make fun of it. Yeah. Right? 
And it has a very transformative effect because- So good. Right? And this is my concern about like comedy's gone away. We just, we said this before I started recording, like you showed me that mug and people were like, oh, your son, let's show him the mug. You can read it. Do you have it? Uh, let's see, I'll hold it up here. Dad. Yeah, it's amazing how one can be such you... an awesome, funny and intelligent person. And I'd like to thank you for making me that. <laughs> And you saw that for what it is, which is how I see it, is, yeah, my son's quite a freaking smart ass, <laughs> like the little bastard. And you said you were on a call and some people were like, no, Doug, I think he's really trying to be, you know, giving you a compliment. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure he's a smart ass. And we had a good laugh. But I feel like people have, have lost their ability to like, yeah, too. you know, to be politically incorrect at the expense of making people laugh and just, you know, I feel like people get triggered when they haven't done whatever. I always, this is, this is like my signals. If something's triggering something in me, it's something I need to look at. Yeah. Like it's, it's a mirror of me over the past two years. I, you know, I always said I'm an empath and I feel everybody and I would cry at everything. And I still do. I mean, I cry at commercials, you know, can't remember what I was reading or listening to the other day and just like waterworks. Um, but I'm less offended. Like I I just, you kind of build this backbone again, it's that balance of still being empathetic and having compassion but not taking everything so personally because humor, you, you can't, you won't find humor in anything. Right. And it's like you said, it's so healing when we get really serious. I'm the same way. I'm like, I need to put on some Dave Chappelle. And if I smoked pot, I would probably smoke pot, <laughs> but I have my bootcraft. I'm like, I need to have a little, you know, a little alcohol, a little, a little something. So they call them spirits. Just, Pick the spirits up a bit. Right. Change the energy. Right. Yes. 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 That's exactly it. I mean, that's to me, that's why I love talking to you is because you're so insightful about this stuff and you, and you take it into very practical terms um, and especially in leadership. So, I mean, that's your, that's really your focus, right? Is executive leadership. So I want to talk to like how people respond when you bring this conversation to them, right? About leading in this different way. Um, I know you mentioned that one person in January, 2020, but it has it been an evolution where some people like, dude, what you crazy? <laughs> what are you talking about? Love leading with love. Not really. Cause I always say, I only bring, I only bring stuff up in context. So, so one of the ways one of the ways that I often refer to my coaching is flat tire coaching, which is, you know, you want to run a business. It's like getting in a car. I'll get in the car next to you. I'm your coach. And you'll, you'll we'll start driving. And you might say to me, well, you know, I don't really want to get better at like changing a flat tire. I'm like, well, let's just keep driving. We'll drive. Let's go faster. Let's go further, faster. And then eventually a tire will blow and we'll get out and we'll talk about changing a flat tire. And Right there, you're going to learn way more about changing a flat tire than if I had described it before we got in the car in the first place. Because you're motivated. Well, you're yeah, it's contextual. You're motivated on the side of the road to figure it out. And we always do that, right? We learn stuff when we're damn motivated 
to learn it. It's why there's the, there's the expression breakdown to breakthrough, right? Mm. When we go through a breakdown is often we, when we reach a breakthrough. There's a great quote by Pema Chodron, which was, it is only by exposing ourselves to annihilation over and over again that we can find what is truly indestructible in us. And it, you know, it's the same thing with coaching. You know, I, when I walk into a coaching engagement, I don't bring out the spiritual stuff. I'm like, where's it hurt? And you know, they'd be like, well, this, this hurts. I'm like, all right, well, let's, let's try the easy stuff first. Like, let's just do a little exercise and you know, go back to three weeks later. He's like, yeah, that didn't really work though. Okay, now we'll go a little bit deeper and go deeper and deeper. You know, and there was, a, there was a guy recently I was working with where I just said, you know, listen to this tape series, this Buddhist tape series. You know, he was like a VP at a financial services firm. And, you know, he came back. He's like, I listened to the whole thing this weekend. It was amazing for these reasons, but it was because he was primed in that moment. Right. So that, that's the only reason. I only bring stuff up in context. I always say, I think in the leadership world, one of the biggest problems is people feel a necessity to get out their framework. Yeah. You know, the five steps or the three this and, People do it because they want to have something they can scale and sell lots of. Yeah. For the most part, that stuff, I don't want to say it's bullshit. It's, it's, it's definitely useful on some level. Frameworks are always useful. So I know someone yesterday said, well, it's like a coat, it's like a coat rack. It's a place to hang stuff, but it's not the actual clothes. Right. And so that, that's helpful from that perspective. But personally, I love getting into those deep conversations with people and, you know, I usually, I look for where it hurts. And when it hurts, people are motivated, like that flat tire, they're motivated to learn. So they'll look, they'll look at anything. Like I've been trying a ton, you know, it's funny. I, sometimes I call myself the coach of last resort because after you've been through everyone else and you've tried all the tips and tricks and you're like, something's not working, right. then someone's primed for the real conversations, you know? I think this is why we have, you know, we're, we're professionally, we're, we're in seemingly different worlds, but we always come together on this. It's like we thrive off of those finding particular solutions. It's why I can, everyone's like, come up with some program and you get to sell it online. I'm like, here's the thing. There's no one solution that's right for everybody. Like you said, I need to know where your pain is and we need to like get to the source of it. And anybody can go online and buy a fitness course, right? People come to me when they've tried all that and they're like, okay, there's something else going on here. It's not just a bum low back. This keeps happening. Yeah. And it's because we have, you know, different tools. We're coming at it from a, from a different place. And, and I think because we both know personally, uh, my teacher once said, you know, change comes from pain. Most people have to be in pain before they're going to really do the work to change habits, you know, and, and then even people don't. Some people will go to a doctor and the doctor will say, you have diabetes, you could die in a month. You know, if you don't get your weight under control and they'll still not do it. Like they just, it, it takes a lot for somebody to change. It's painful. Right. Totally, to totally. And that's, and that goes back to why it can't happen so quickly, right? right. It's just, you've gotta be, you know, there's a reason why when I work with leaders, I like working with, you know, people who've been leading for 15 years, 10 years, yeah. because they're trying to get someplace 
deeper or, or bigger, right? I mean, it's funny, everyone says, oh, who do you coach? I struggle coaching like really young professionals just because they're still kind of looking for the tips and tricks. Yeah. And, you know, they may have to go through that for a while, right? Yeah. And so there's, there's someone for everyone. And, yeah. Right? Yeah. But I think, yeah, I, again, I thrive on that um, interpersonal. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I, I do a lot of online stuff, right? I've done a lot of um, mass DVDs and stuff like that. But for the real change, it's got to come from, like you said, that person has to be ready. Right. That person has to be ready. Like when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yep. Where is the role of vulnerability within the workplace? You know, it's, it's like it's the most critical leadership skill. It's also the one that's the hardest for people, I think, to develop. Um, you know, I, I don't, it's critical. Um, I can tell you right now that I'm working with some people who are struggling to develop it and it's at the core of all their issues and challenges. Um, I think like the conversation we're just having, vulnerability is so important, but at the same time, you know, I think you can't have this one size fit all answer. We'll make yourself vulnerable, right? Because that's really dangerous in some environments. I mean, if you're like, for example, if you're a single mother with, you know, raising uh, a couple kids and or a single father raising a couple kids and, you know, you start experimenting with vulnerability that makes you look weak and you jeopardize your pay, that can have real damaging effects. So, um, Whereas if, you know, you're a very senior leader uh, who's got all sorts of stability and you've just never let yourself be seen in that way, um, you may have less physically at risk, but more identity stuff at risk. Right. People don't see you as relatable or someone they could come and, and discuss things with. There's not an open environment. Exactly. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and for you, you don't really, you might not see the value of it because, you know, I think everyone gets to a place where they say something's missing. Mm. And once you get there, that, that requires vulnerability to look at what's missing. It's, it requires someone to raise their hand and say, something's not working. What can mm. I do? I think a good coach creates an environment and a space for someone to explore that and find their way there on their own. Um, and that's why I think your know, coaching is so valuable because you can't do that with someone inside your company because you're constantly trying to decide, well, I wanna be vulnerable, but what's the potential blowback from me being vulnerable here? And when you're doing that sort of calculus, it becomes impossible to really make yourself vulnerable. So that's why people do it with therapists, different right. spiritual leaders, uh, spiritual um, teachers, um, and sometimes even friends, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a really interesting because we all have these things where we go, I want to be vulnerable about that, but I don't know how that whole thing's going to blow up. Mm -hmm. right? or, or mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's, I think vulnerability is at the heart of transformation, personal transformation, organizational transformation, and at the same time, it's so hard to do and there's not any one size fits all way to do it. You know? Right. I mean, what I, hear, I keep hearing you in, in conversation saying, 
I think this and I think this and I think this and right. There's never a black and white. Um, there's never a good or bad. It's just, you have to look at each individual situation, each person, what they're bringing, what the blowback is, what are the consequences? I mean, it's so interesting because five years ago, I was all about, you know, Brene Brown and vulnerability and to try to open myself more. And now I'm like, all right, done. Let's go. You know, like boots on the ground. You just, it, it feels like sometimes if we keep just talking about the emotions and now we're back to that kind of feminine, if we just keep talking about that and keep it, we can't move forward. It's like keeping us stuck in a way, right? Let me just tell you how I feel. Well, let me tell you how I feel. And doesn't this feel good? It feels so good. Okay. Heal, move forward, heal, move forward, right? There's, again, there's that balance of like sitting in it, getting swampy, getting messy. Let me look at my feelings. Let me do this. And then what am I going to do about it? Yeah. What are the actions I can take, clear the trauma, clear all this, and then moving on. Right. Yeah. yeah that's, and, um, you know, a, a highly related word, which uh, you hear a lot in the business world is authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, are you being authentic? You know, and there's people, someone wrote an article recently, like, unless you're Oprah, don't try to be authentic at work, right? <laughs> this is in the New York Times. <laughs> uh, you know, that's another one where it's like some people, they totally bastardize the idea of authenticity. They're like, I don't want to keep things between us. I want to be authentic. And I think you're being an asshole, right? <laughs> like that's, that's not really authenticity. Authenticity in a situation like that is um, I'm struggling with how to communicate something that I'm feeling deeply right now, and I don't know how to get it across. You know, that would be authentic as opposed to you're an asshole because authenticity is really what is the the core emotion. It's not what I think about you. It's what's going on inside of me. Again, yeah, again, taking personal responsibility for what you're feeling. They're triggering it. It's never about that person. So if you can be honest, I think there's that difference between authentic and honesty, right? It's like, oh, I'm being honest. I, th- I, I do. I think you're an asshole. <laughs> That's right. honesty. Right. But being authentic is like, this is what sharing what it's, what it's triggering in you right. and then finding that shared humanity. Right. I mean, I think that's what, that's what our struggles hopefully are bringing us to is like, oh, I've been there. I know that feeling someone's done, you know, someone's triggered that in me and, right. and you know, that, uh, it's, it's funny. I'm laughing because the, the Oprah thing, I don't necessarily feel she's completely authentic to be honest. You know, she's got a, a persona she needs, she's got a whole empire she needs to maintain. Exactly. Right. And that's authenticity as business product. Right. 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 It's authenticity. Right. No, exactly. I mean, it's the same thing with like, uh, I don't want to offend, you know, you or any of your listeners here, but you know, like Deepak Chopra is, you know, I don't think anybody, please (laughs) offend me, offend me. Uh, But you know, I mean, that is like, that is like authenticity, vulnerability for sale. You know, it's, it's, it's just, um, but, but, you know, we live in a world where you kind of have to commercialize and productize and it can be very schizophrenic to, 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 to live between those two worlds because, you know, I often think 
in terms of transactional versus relational. Like that's another tension. And, you know, there's, you don't, you don't get by materially and monetarily in this world without being transactional to some degree. Like you have to be transactional yeah. because every, every time you get something that you can, I mean, that you can use to live food and money and all these things, you've got to do a transaction. Right. And um, I think there's a lot of people in the leadership world that would say, look, you've got to be relational in order to strengthen your ability to do great transactions. And there's that obvious connection. Um, but then there's a lot of people that are like, you, know, you can just kind of jam through a lot of transactions too and fuck the relationships. Right. Like that, that that's a very easy place to go. Um, so there's always this pull, I think, on our day-to-day -day basis between being relational and transactional. You know, you see that person that you, you know, uh, you know, kind of want to go work with or hang out with or something, but you're kind of like, God, that's going to, they're always a lot of fun, but that, I'm not going to really make enough money over there. And I'm going to, over here, I can make a lot of money, but that's kind of, kind of soul sucking over here. I think we're always trying to balance that transactional relational thing and um uh you know what we're in a world which is driving transactions like that's it this world is yeah. transaction 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 everything's a transaction well and i think you know you mentioned deepak for me it's like a gateway drug you know what i mean a lot of a lot of yoga is to be honest i feel it's a gateway drug it gets people like ooh there's something that, I mean, it was with me, it was all athletic, right? How can I make my body look better? I'm stretching, I'm a dancer, I want to do all this. And I was like, mm, there's something more to this. And I, and I kept going until I found somebody who could help me on that path of the something more. Um, I've done, I've done some of Deepak's like 30 day challenges and they were great. You know, he's not my teacher, but he's helpful, right? Yeah, like for right. most people, it's, it's, it's a nice, it's a starting line. Right. And that hopefully, um, again, nothing's good or bad. It just depends on where you are. There's something for everybody in this world. Um, and hopefully it gets people out of that strictly transactional and into a little bit more of the, the relational. Um, yeah. You know, I, the money thing's hard. It's always been hard for me about I'm more relational. Like, oh, I'll do this because it this is fun for me and I love to do this. And then... I was like, well, I would like some energy back in the form of money, right. right? If we think of money as energy, it's like, well, I'm putting all this energy out to help people. Why shouldn't I get something back? Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that, that's the world we live in. That's, and that's, I think, a fundamental tension that we're all, you know, that we're all dealing with. So, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, um, you know, from a leadership perspective, I think people are, really this year 2020 was a real wake-up year i think for people we'll see how long it lasts right i mean when you spend 12 13 months now staring at your own mortality which is what i think everyone has been doing mm. um you know it kind of softens you a little bit which is a good thing i think in our world right um but are we going to just kind of go back to the go-go stuff in like two years from now? Is it going to just kind of look the same? I don't think it'll happen immediately, but in two years from now, um, you know, the good news is I think we're opening up, you know, awareness of some of the destructive ways we've been in the world 
whether that's through you know the environment, the way we've been, or um, how we've treated each other. But you know, we're still a big roiling capitalistic machine, and so um, you, you know, one thing you said was it starts with the person, and I, I believe that. And I, that's why one of the things I'm most interested in working on right now is. You know, I don't know how the systems are going to transform. I am not sure. I'm not a policymaker. I'm not, you know, a senior executive at one of the biggest companies in the, in the world or anything where there's a lot of power. I'm advising some of them, but, you know, sometimes the advice they're looking for is really kind of transactional. How do I get better at this thing to just do more transactions? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I do think that there's an in, in, there's a personal intrapersonal awakening, which can have a um, catalytic kind of effect in the world. And um, I'm just hoping that there is that elevation of consciousness. And, um, you know, and then where it goes, we don't know, because because that's, that's all I really feel my responsibility is at this point, given who I am and what I've studied and what I enjoy, and what I think I'm good at, which is marrying the masculine and the feminine, understanding the tra transactional world and the relational spiritual world and helping people. Um, I need the transactional business lingo in order to be accepted into right that circle, that world where yes. I can say, hey, by the way, you know, listen to this t tape series by, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh or whatever, and we'll come back to it. And so, you know, the, you build trust with them. They, they, there's, I there's build, trust in you. You built, they, they get yeah, you. Because I'm not, you know, I think what's really hard with people who are deep into the spiritual stuff, if they go into those senior executive worlds is the senior executives first reaction is they don't get it though. They can't relate. They yeah. don't really get the pressure that I'm under. So yes. while it sounds nice, it's a bit like La La Land, really. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's, I think, the value of living at that nexus it makes it harder to productize. You can productize on the relational, you can productize on the transactional, and right in the middle, they're like, well, pick a lane, man, you know? Yeah, it's yes. Like, and I don't want to pick a lane. Right. That's, I mean, that's exactly why I did this podcast is, you know, when I talk to the kind of the more spiritual guests, I'm like, I really want people to get the feeling of what a spiritual connections means for them in the material world, how it changes things, how it changes leaders, how it changes people in power. Like I've, all, I've always said the first people I want to teach yoga or meditation or, or self-awareness to is Bezos, the president. You know, when you get those people to do this kinds of work, like you're doing, which is why I think you're, you, what you're doing is so important in the world then you're going to start to see a different society. Right. Here's the catch, like you said, and this is why I feel almost blessed. Like when you, when you have the pain of not having enough money, right. And knowing what it's like to live hand to mouth or paycheck to paycheck, you seek the deeper stuff to work on. But when you've got $6 billion to protect yourself, because it feels you could just go get whatever's going to make you feel good in the more in the moment. Right. Right. You could just go buy a new car and you get that rush. And then when that fades, you can go buy something else or you can go create something else. And you're always sheltered from that pain right. of change. Right. Yeah. And, and that's why, it, you know, sometimes it's a health scare that'll do it. 
Right. Because what can they lose? They can't, I mean, there's nothing he can lose materially that's going to make any Correct. But he can lose loved ones. He can lose his health, you know, and that's where you see that real wake up call with people where they have their come to whoever moment, right? Um, Just say, come to Jesus. That's the phrase. Jesus moment, but you know, maybe it's uh, come to come to Buddha or come to whoever. Um, <laughs> that you know, they just realize they've got a limited ability to force an outcome, right? There's just you know, my body's my body. You know, we all brought the same body in, and yeah, maybe I could pay for better medical care, but. Um, you know, some special gene therapy for millions of dollars or something, but you know, that's it. You're going out the same way everyone else is. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that, I think that's the kind of wake up call, but there's always a, there's always some sort of break, right. That really makes you wake up. Um, and, you know, I think some people are more sensitive to what the break is and they go, yeah, see it coming. I want to fix some stuff now. Right. But, it's that sensitivity uh, and awareness, self-awareness. Mm, like it's almost for me on a daily basis. Mm, I'm not feeling so good. Like something needs to be tweaked. And and when you get to that point, it's like, I guess to me, what I would call like self-mastery, right? It's, it's okay, I need to shift a little before the big thing happens. You know, I had a couple of those big things happen and now I feel like the littlest thing I know it's like, oh, I'm not going in the right direction or I'm right. not being led, you know, I'm not taking myself to a good place. So, so how can I, how can I shift? Um, you mentioned the health and that's, that's why that's the hill I'll die on, right? Is health. And that's where I feel, I get up, I'm like, my body feels good for the most part. You know, we're both getting a little older and we have our little things, but I feel healthier than I've ever felt before. And in that I have, I'm like, if that were measured monetarily, I'd be freaking Jeff Bezos rich. If my spirituality and my connection to that part of me is, is measured in, in money, I'm, I'm filthy, stinking rich. And you can't buy that. Right. Yeah. 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 That's it. I mean, that, that's it. So yeah, I, I, you know, I, so I, I'm hopeful, you know, that we're, uh, that we're going in a good direction, but you know, one of a couple things is going to happen. You know, we're either going to screw this planet up and you know uh, get a redo in a few, you know, a couple hundred million years, maybe um, colonize some other planet, right, or figure out like how to live together. And um, you know, we're we're at the beginning of that exploration. You know, I mean, the industrial revolution was like in the grand scheme of history was like a blip ago, right? It was yeah, yeah. Years ago, right? I yeah. mean, we've never lived in an institution, like a, a, a industrialized society like this before. We're, we're, we, are, we are built as small community hunter-gatherer sort of people. Um, and I think we're starting to realize that like, just this unfettered industrial industrialization capital, like, you know, it's got like some serious drawbacks, mental health wise, pollution wise, you know, all sorts of, and so I think everyone's like, yeah, this game, this game can't go on forever. Um, and people are just waking up to that. I don't think there's gonna, I don't think in our lifetime, there's gonna be, you know, um, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of tectonic shifts in it, but it's going to be evolutionary shifts slowly but surely. And I think yeah. our job while we're here is to do our best to plant some of the seeds that future generations are going to be able to uh, reap, right? Yeah. So, um, so that's, I think, the best we can do, you know, and, and laugh while we're doing it, right? Have, have some fun while we're doing it because, you know, none of us are getting out alive. And, and the quicker that we realize that, the more enjoyable life is. And that's the irony, right? So, yeah. I love that. Oh my God. Every time I need to laugh, I go back to Ricky Gervais' uh, Golden Globe speech from God, not this year, last year. I think it was 2020. He's like, so let's all have a laugh at your expense because none of us are getting, and there's no sequel. Like you're not getting another movie. So let's just have some fun. And people were all like, I mean, if you saw that, they, he was he was highly offensive to Hollywood and I just I thought it was hilarious. Well, yeah. Um, Anytime someone takes themselves too seriously. Yeah. You're having, you can feel it. Like when you're taking yourself too seriously, like, okay, kind of getting stiff. I'm getting frustrated. Like the next set of moves are going to be a mess if I don't lighten up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You said something about to Mother Earth, which I, I do have a little different perspective on because I have, I had a particular experience that, that taught me you know, we're all grieving and climate change. And I agree it's happening. I'm not a climate denier, but again, I had a very personal experience and some spiritual work and stuff where it's like, I got a very clear message. She, you know, it's called mother earth for a reason, the feminine, the Shakti of, of the world, um, the material world. It's like, yeah, I'll be fine. Stop your wailing. Stop your like, Oh, mama. she's like, listen, I'll either take you all out if I need you to survive or, you know, it'll, it, it's fine. I mean, there is that element of like, for me, she's in control. I, I have no control, right? So she'll be fine. And I live consciously just because it feels good to me. I love her. I live in nature. I go on hikes. I hate to see pollution. Um, it still comes back to like the individual relationship because, I don't want to, like, there's nothing in me that says, yeah, let me throw that pl plastic bottle out the window or smoke or do any, there's nothing in me that, that takes pleasure in that or isn't aware of that. So when we have that awareness, I think my point is that just spontaneous, you act good spontaneously, right? You just, you don't, because doing those other things doesn't feel good, you know? Buying a six pack of soda doesn't make me feel good for so many reasons. The sugar, the waste, the product, you know, and, and we just, those things, you act benevolent and compassionate from the true place, not from a place of guilt. Oh, I need to do this because if I don't, mother, it's going to get really pissed, you know, and I need to save the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think of it a little bit differently than you. You know, for me, it's more about respect. And um, I think that, you know, someone who overfishes a massive part of the ocean and depletes an entire species of fish, it's like, it's a transactional mindset based on getting, getting enough, you know, Getting, getting your money, right? Getting as much as you can that doesn't really have respect for the rest of the people and humanity. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like a shitting where you live, right? Kind of thing. It's like, 
you know what, the house isn't going to fall over, but I'd also don't want to live in piles of shit either. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's like, it's a mindset of deep respect. When you think of like the Native American idea of seventh generation, right? Everything Native Americans did historically um, before, you know, they were kind of pushed, <laughs> pushed aside in our country. Um, they always had this, this uh, guiding idea of anything we do, we want to understand what impact it's going to have for the next seven generations. Mm. And, um, and, and their, their entire way of life was based on a deep sense of respect for every living thing around them. And I think, you know, our kind of dominant, you know, the humanity's idea that this is our playground to shit where we want and do whatever we want. It's a really, it's a really selfish, disrespectful way to be in the world. You know, it's not as bad as it was in the 1970s when the, uh, I think it's the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught fire because so many cars were thrown into it and there was so much oil that it actually caught fire. The whole river did, you know, that's where the EPA came from, right? So, yeah. you know, I think that there is a very strong selfish uh, thread that runs through humanity that societies like Native Americans, you know, didn't allow to run rampant. And I think our society has allowed it and our capitalistic society has allowed it to run rampant and that, you know, let alone, yeah, Mother Earth, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. Like Mother Earth, it's like, you might not be here, but I'm going to be fine, right? Humanity, you might not make it. Like this grand experiment, you know, you kind of played the selfish card a little too much and screwed yourself. So I'm going to organ reject you. You can try to come back in a few hundred million years, a couple billion years. And that very well may happen. But still at the same time, it's like, we can't raise the level of consciousness disrespecting all sorts of life forms and the earth, right? Yeah, but again, it, it for me, it comes down to when you understand always the kind of the ills of society for me come from this disconnection with something bigger than us, whether it's spiritual, like that's because the Native Americans had such a strong spiritual tradition. They understood they were a microcosm of the macro. Exactly. So their behavior comes out of a deep self-respect, respect of the self, respect, because they know they're not just this physical body, right? It's not just what, what can I do to satisfy my urges? It's actually, how do I fulfill myself in a spiritual way? And like I said, then out of that comes the behavior, the reverence for earth, because they understand if they hurt mother earth, if they destroy her, they're only destroying themselves because exactly. they're a smaller part of the bigger picture. Right. And so when I'm looking at solutions, I feel like that lack of connection is really where you have to go to, yeah. to you really have to go to the root, all these little tinkering that we're making with policy and all that. It's great but the root of the cause of the, of the healing has to be done at that deep level. We have to understand fundamentally that we're not just flesh and bone, that there's something beyond this, because if we're only if we're only living to serve that flesh and bone, the passions of the flesh or whatever, and this is where I feel like religion plays a big part, not the institutions of religion, but the spirit of religion, um, you know, and really 
assisting the healing of the world is for people to find that connection and realize what they do. And this is why I love talking to you because we always, we disagree maybe on the ends, but we always come back to the same point. Like what we do has a ripple effect out. I throw that plastic bottle. I'm actually disrespecting myself. You know, I wrote a blog about this in the beginning of quarantine when I was hiking um, in, in the state park, which is right out my back door. And I saw a tampon like a used tampon applicator on the, on the trail. And I was like, for, I, bewildered, but first, I mean, maybe it fell out of somebody's backpack or something, but, but the trigger for me was like, say, how dare you disrespect mother earth in that way? You know, like the Coke, whatever it would be, if it were a Coke bottle or any kind of trash, every time I go down to the beach, I'm like, Oh, and then I had a, a, a realization of like, well, there's something in that person that doesn't respect their own femininity, their own, but to just like, I don't know. I, I made this connection right back yeah. to the micro of the macro. Um, there's, but there's a, you know, it gets back to this idea of, um, and this is in a lot of spiritual traditions, you know, oneness, that it's the illusion of separateness that has us all making these decisions right whether that's separate from you and me or are we separate from the animal kingdom or you know like one of my favorite chapters of any book of all time is the last chapter of siddhartha by herman hess where he talks about um where he talks about um uh the wisdom that he found right and he just talks about you know this rock look at this rock this rock is it's part of the earth. And then at one point it'll be part of a body. And then at one point it'll be back in the earth. And like, we're all just, we're all just this like organic matter. That's just moving around with different sorts of consciousnesses. Yeah. Um, and so if you think of it that way, you're like, well, yeah, why would I destroy me? Like you just said, right. Why would I destroy that's disrespecting me to disrespect that. Um, and I think the illusion of separateness is at the heart of so many of our problems. Because if I think I'm separate from you, I can treat you like crap. Right. Or hurt me. Right. Right. Um, but that's a, you know, but our individualistic culture, I think America is probably one of the most individualistic cultures, probably is the most individualistic culture on the face of the earth, um, has this kind of rugged individual, you know, undertone to it. It's how we were built as a country. And I think we're seeing the downside of that, right? That it only has so much um, kind of interpersonal growth that you can have when you're just thinking about what can I get for me? How yeah. can I make it work for me? Um, and I always find that people, I mean, you know, whenever you're feeling down, if you go help someone, why do you feel better, right? Because it reorients your world. It reorients you to the reality of the world that it's bigger than you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I know it's weird because I right now, I mean, the conversations that I get excited about having, though, are self-sovereignty, but it's it's got to come from a true source of power, as I point up, because I don't that's just the best way I know how to show it. You know, the are plugging into our true source of power, not the power of the ego and the will and the and the feeble human mind. Right. And and that's why I think people get confused and I've lost a lot of people, but when it's, when it's self-sovereignty or individualism connected, right. That 
really, I can only change me. I can't change this world. I, I'm not here to save the world, you know, but, but um, volunteering does make me feel better doing something for others again, but it's just spontaneous con- because it comes from a spontaneous connection to right. the source, the one where we all came from. Um, not out of some guilt. Every time I do charity or give money out of guilt, it never feels good. Right. It feels like you said, very transactional. It's like, oh, you need help. Let me try to pick you up. That never feels good for me. Right. Um, right. I never, I've never like the one thing I don't, I, I don't ever post on social media, which is ironic because we're talking about it, but here's me doing good things in the world. I never, I never post like going down to help at the soup kitchen. Yay. Like, right. Right, it doesn't, right. that doesn't make me feel any better than just doing it. Right. I just, you know, I don't need to prove to you I'm a good person. Like, I think at the end of the day, we have to go to bed with ourselves, knowing what our true motivations are, how we handled the challenges of our day, um, right. you know, and like, and being responsible for ourselves. Yeah, totally. That's, you know, at some level, um, you know, you get to this place where um, it, it's kind of spe- speechless. You, you you can't, you know, true true wisdom is another line from Siddhartha, which is knowledge is communicable, but true wisdom is not, mm-hmm. right? Like I can give you knowledge, but I can't give you wisdom. And that gets down to the distinctions between Cartesian philosophy and Heideggerian philosophy, existential. I mean, existing in the world has a certain sort of knowledge and wisdom to it that cannot be imparted to others. And, um, you know, but we live in a knowledge-based kind of world. And so in the business world that shows up as best practices, you know, if you're a company that's been doing something for 10 years and become really successful, the idea that you can package that up in a report and give it to someone else and they can enact it is when you say it like that, asinine. Because, you know, in there's two different types of knowledge. There's no what, which is the things that I did, these 10 things. And then there's no how, which is how do those 10 things actually come to life? And a lot of that's muscle memory that's in a person or a team or an organization. And that's where I think best practices gets into such challenges in organizations. Um, because what we're talking about right now is wisdom and wisdom is hard fought and it's, uh, you know, in some ways unspeakable, so. Yeah, I mean, I can say from personal experiences, the, the most fulfilling, joyful moments in my life have, not been recorded, not been posted to social media because you really can't put those things into words. You can't put feeling and energy at its at its highest vibration to use, you know, high vibes only, but um, you can't put those into words, you know? Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's impossible. And, you know, it's kind of like, uh, this line from the Tao Te Ching of always life is elegant, you know, true words aren't elegant, elegant words aren't true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like the fancy language is, you know, sometimes I think it's a real problem in our world where we try to, you know, kind of earn a living and be spiritual because it sounds so silly and foolish and basic. 
when you say some of the most basic things about what it means to live a happy life, when you try to communicate beingness, you know, you can't, you can't do it. Um, and anyone who's posted on social media knows if you post something really deep and thoughtful, a lot of times that won't get anywhere near the interaction as something <laughs> some sugar high sort of thing, right? Um, so, you know, we've been trained, our attention has been trained to focus on, you know, I think magazine articles. I mean, you used to have these like 10,000 word magazine articles that doesn't even exist anymore. Um, our attention spans have been, you know, down to the, down to like a gnat. Um, and we're just looking for that next quick, you know, thing, but it, but it feels just like eating candy. It feels empty after a while. You don't feel good. You don't feel full. And, um, you know, so it's good to just kind of have these sorts of things, chat and, you know, bring the wisdom out. I always know how I feel. I, I can, now I'm, I'm becoming, it's so easy to know how I feel in a conversation and when I need to end it. Yeah. Like, okay, this is going, this is not giving me that feeling with you. I know we could talk for hours and days and that's, you know, built upon a long shared history, but I don't, you know, I don't have that with all of my friends from high school. A lot of them I do, I think. Is the shared history, right? Yeah, yeah. But we've also grown up to, like, I think the two of us have been on similar paths. Yeah. Um, and so it's always, it's always wonderful. What does connection mean to you? You know, you hear the word connection. What does that mean? Um, you know, to me, it starts with um, listening. That's, I think that's the heart of it. You know, it's like, um, I went to this, um, uh, it's called Courage and Renewal. There's this very famous educator by the name of Parker Palmer, and he's, I think he's, he's in his 80s now. And, and um, he comes out of the Quaker tradition. And the Quaker tradition has things called clearing meetings, clearing, it's called clearing committee. And it's a way to give someone a clear space to be. And mm-hmm. um, it is a hour and a half process, and it's very structured where three or four people are your committee you're up there and the committee members cannot provide any advice. They literally just listen. And it's very structured. It's 90 minutes, that's it. And once you leave the room, you never talk about anything that happened in that room again. And the person starts 15 minutes, they share, here's what I'm going through, here's what's on my mind. And then for like an hour, people just ask clarifying questions. So it's, so I heard this, it's not, well, did you think about that? Or how'd you try this? There's none of there's that's, you know, totally off limit. It's a, you know, I heard this and I'm curious how that relates to this. It's just clarifying questions, clarify, clarify. That's an hour. And then um, the last 15 minutes, I can't remember, but it's kind of wrapped up and that's it. And as someone, there's an old, there's an expression, I know they say it here, but I've heard it before, which is, you know, listening is love. And I don't think I've ever listened to someone in that way. I mean, think about it. We, we're, our, we're in our lives, we're in our late forties. We uh, have been quote unquote listening to people forever, but we don't, we don't, we don't really hear each other. Yeah. Right. And um, so when I think of connection, I think of like, um, just hearing people, like really hearing people. Um, and you could also say seeing people, right? Like I see you, 
I mean, how often, you know, there's, there's a, I think it's Ubuntu, I think it's called. It's a, it's a South African religion. And they're, um, I can't remember their, whenever they greet someone, they use an expression. I can't remember what it was, but it essentially translates to, I see you. So in, it's not like, what's up? Or, hey, it's, I see you, which is like, you are there and I see you, or I hear you. I think most of us are walking around not seeing and hearing other people and not feeling seen or heard. And to me, that's the, the heart of connection. Yeah, of, of witnessing, of witnessing somebody not yeah. trying to fix them, right? Not yeah. being that solution. I'm going to fix you. You're, there's something wrong with you. I'm going to fix you. I listen to a lot of Abraham Hicks and it's like, it's like Jesus did not stand there seeing you dripping in sickness. He saw you as the whole soul healthy. And, and then he says, go away and tell no one because people think you're crazy. Right. right? Like it's, it's, you've healed yourself because you're, you're connecting to the wholeness of somebody you're connect, you're seeing them in their, in their spiritual perfectness, yeah. as opposed to there's something wrong with you and I'm going to fix it and let's fix it. Yeah. 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 That's exactly. People don't want to be fixed. They just want to be understood. Yeah. Right. So that's great. It's a good point to end on. Beautiful point to end on. Great. I love you. Yeah, love you. Thank you. This is good. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connection with Doug Sunheim. Stay tuned for the next episode on June 15th with Craig Williams. Craig is an infinite source of wisdom and knowledge in the fields of healing and health with degrees in Ayurveda, Oriental Medicine, Herbology, Jyotish, Vedanta, Tantra, and Acupuncture, just to name a few. Craig has more wisdom in his pinky finger than I have in my entire body. I believe our conversation will offer some much needed wisdom in these times. Until then, you have two weeks to catch up on past episodes with Dr. Tommy John, Michaela Bohm, and Zephyr Wildman, and hit the like button and share a kind word or two. Pass it along. Thanks again for your support and stay connected.